I'm Chris Roberts, co-founder of North Wales Dragons Community Football Teams, helping to raise money and awareness for good causes. We are bringing you a podcast series on how we first started, where we are now, and as we look to the future. Part one, where it first started, at a dining room table. I've always had a love of football, really. From the age of 10 years old, I used to go and watch my dad play. My dad was um, working in a washing machine factory and uh, they used to have interdepartmental matches and uh, he would play and he would go in goal. And like I say, they used to have these departmental matches and that was where my first love of football started. Back then we had a black and white TV and the only kind of football that we used to see was, well, I was never allowed to stay up and watch match of the day, but I remember the World Cup in 1966 and that's when I first started seeing Brazil play. And uh, there was a player then called Jairzinho who was my inspiration. And uh, yeah, that was... um, that was my first introduction to football. So I suppose 1966, I would have been seven years old at the time. And then 1970 was when I first, like I say, really became interested in football because, you know, obviously with my dad playing and also 1970 was um, the World Cup final. And I remember following Jairzino again, um, and he scored in every round of the World Cup, and he ended up becoming a hero. And so I, I f- followed football all through the years, and uh, I was involved in um, arranging football matches. I was involved in like business-to-business football matches more than anything. Um, the company that I would play for would play local teams, and... Uh, that was how, how it would go. And <clears throat> sort of fast forward and 2006, 2007, I was uh, sat by a dining room table and uh, it was pouring down with rain outside. We weren't going anywhere. And um, just reading through the paper and I saw that it was... In the coming week, there was going to be a, a European ties. And I remember Man United were going to be playing Leon. And um, as, as I looked around the room, there was a, a frame on the wall. And it was, a, we've, we've actually still got the frame now. And it was a, a Picasso. And uh, anyway, I, for whatever the reason, I started doodling. And... Um, I put like a a mock-up together of this frame and within it, like I say, on paper, I put these apertures and on one side would be Manchester United and on the other side there would be Lyon and there would be two crests. So uh, I thought, well, you know how we've got the pennants at the moment, you know, they pass pennants over to each other and I thought... If they were to pass these frames over between the directors, you know, would that be a good idea? And I kind of put it to one side and just left it alone. 
Um, at the time, there was uh, a young lady uh, called Carol Beard, and she was the commercial manager of Colwyn Bay Football Club, where I lived. And um, she came into the office where, where I worked, and she said, you know, would your company, your boss, would, would they be interested in sponsoring Colwyn Bay Football Club because it was their 125th anniversary. So we we didn't we you know we we knew that our boss was um shall we say not that interested in football and he really wouldn't put his hand in his pocket for any anything football wise. Um so as I said to her, I said no but I said, I've got an idea. I said, being as though it's your 125th anniversary and I've always been a Colwyn Bay supporter, I would kind of like to put something together, if I may. And if you like it, you like it. And if you don't like it, you just throw it in the bin. So she said, that's a, a wonderful gesture. And she said, yeah, well, please, please do. And anyway, I went away and... Um, the the Picasso frame on the wall became you know, became an idea, and uh, I went to our local our local cheap shop, shall we call it, and I bought a frame, tore the insides out of it, and I put this thing together for Colwyn Bay Football Club, and it was celebrating the hundred and twenty fifth anniversary. Fast forward slightly, and uh, the day of the match came, and I remember they played Chorley Town. Um, I remember the captain of the day for Chorley was a guy called Sean Teal. If any football fans, especially Aston Villa fans, would remember Sean Teal playing for them. And like I say, he was he was the captain, and we did the uh, handover, and that was it. I didn't think anything more of it. Um, I received a letter from Colwyn Bay Football Club and it said, thanks very much for your gift. And we've put it in the boardroom and it's there for everyone to see on match day. And that was, that was nice. You know, that, that was, that was really good. I, being a Colwyn Bay supporter since I was a child, then you couldn't ask for for much more than that, really. And I'm glad that this idea that they had um, went down well. Going forward a, a few months, I went up to Colwyn Bay to go and watch a, a match. And while I'm sat there, um, because we used to go into a into a lounge, into a bar before the game, and we'd have a read of the programme or we'd have a read of the paper. And this chap comes out of the boardroom and he said, are you Chris? So I said, yeah. So he said, did you make that frame that's hung up on the wall in the boardroom? He said, the 125th anniversary one. So I said, yeah. So he said, we want one of them. So I said, oh, okay. So he says, in fact, he said, we want two of those. He said, we want one for us. He said, and one for our opposition. So I said, okay. I said, but do you know what? I said, I only did this for Colwyn Bay. I said, I didn't really, you know, envisage doing it for anyone else. It was just an idea that I had. Oh, no, he said, we, we really do want, want to. He said, and we'd love you to do them for us. 
So I said, oh, okay. So he said, who? I said, well, you know, you're... I said, yeah, I've seen that you're from Sheffield Football Club. I said, can you tell me a bit more? So he said, yeah. He said, um, we're officially the oldest club in the world. He said, I'm Stephen Hall. He said, and I'm Sheffield's secretary. So I said, OK. So he said, yeah. So he said, you know, would you do it? So I said, well, I said, I really don't know. So he said, I'll tell you what, he said, well, why don't you come down to Sheffield? He said, and why don't you meet our our chairman? He said, there's a guy called Richard Timms. He said, and he'd love to have a chat with you. So again, when I was when I was little, when I was, you know, when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time in Sheffield um, because my auntie lived over there. And I thought, you know what, if I go over there, then I can see where I used to go when I was, you know, when I used to go over there for my summer holidays. And I suppose I could call in at Sheffield Football Club and see exactly what it was that they were after. So one day I went over there and I sat down and met with Richard Timms and Stephen Hall. And... Um, we went through, you know, what it is that I'd done. And he said, oh, yeah, he said, uh, Richard said, we want we want two of these. He said, definitely. So I said, okay. I said, who, who are your opponents on the day then? Can you give me some more information? And they said, you, uh, we're playing into Milan. I said, what? He said, we're playing into Milan. He said, we want one of the frames to keep for ourselves as a memento, he said, and we want one to present to Inter Milan. If I never did anything ever again, that was going to happen. I was going to make that happen no matter what. And away I went. I went to, <laughs> I went to a pound stretcher in Colwyn Bay and um, I bought two frames. I ripped the insides out of them and I made them the best frames that you could ever, ever have. Um, I made a few mistakes on them, ripped them out, did them again, ripped it out, did it again. And it was, like I say, I, I put these two things together and um, I went down to Sheffield. It was, I can't remember the date, but it was November 20, uh, November 2007. It was bitterly cold this, this evening. And uh, I was in the uh, players tunnel at Sheffield United. It was played at Bramall Lane, the game, this international celebration. And while I'm in the players tunnel, there's, you know, I'm waiting to go out onto the pitch. The players are lined up and there's Marco Matarazzi. He's just been butted by Zinedine Zidane in the World Cup final. There's a 16-year-old Mario Balotelli. Um, we go out onto the pitch and there's nearly 20,000 people inside the ground. Um, 
I can imagine how these players walk out in front of 70, 80, 90, 100,000 because when I walked out, I had goosebumps. And like I say, I think there was 18, 19,000 there this particular night. And I walk out onto the pitch and I've got all these Inter Milan players and presidents and you name it, they're around me and I'm pinching myself because I really can't believe what it is that we've or that that I've done and uh, that's been created and where it's got me to. <clears throat> um, and then the surreal moment that Pele walks out onto the pitch as well, and the crowd erupts and you know, all eyes are focused on him, and we make the presentation. There was a guy called Dave McCarthy of Sheffield Football Club who was the who was the manager and there was a, a chap called Lee Walshaw who was his assistant manager and we made the presentation and uh, I walked off the pitch and left you know left the the game to carry on and I went and sat in the director's box and watched the game and I think even even that that moment now i can still feel you know i can still feel the goosebumps because really what and what an amazing what an amazing opportunity and what an amazing thing to be involved in and after that sheffield um we worked with them a couple of times we put some frames together for them and they said to us uh, while we were working for them have you any idea how we could actually raise some money for charity? We said no, but we said we'll go away and have a think about it. And in the next episode, I will tell you what we came up with and how uh, we we progressed as as forming the team for the North Wales Dragons. Well, that will come along in episode two. If you like what you've heard today, please join us for part two by subscribing to our podcast. You can follow our amazing journey by searching for North Wales Dragons on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to have a chat with me about what we do, please send me an email. It's chris at northwalesdragons.co.uk and we look forward to being with you the next time. First question, what does social impact mean to you? Hmm. So I think that there are so many problems that the world is facing right now. And it is, we're in this age of a vicious cycle of disengagement. People don't care about each other. I don't care about you. You don't care about me. I don't care about my job. My job doesn't care about me. The politicians that we elect don't care about us. We don't care about them. So there's just vicious cycle of disengagement. And I think social impact is the way that we, we can be social in our impact. We can create the world that we want to see. 
And I think that social impact, we do it collaboratively. It's not just me volunteering and it's not just you organizing soccer teams. It is all of us coming together to create a social impact, doing it socially. When did you first become aware of social impact? Mm. I have always been a community organizer. I spent almost my entire career in the nonprofit field. Uh, I, I started right before I graduated. I started in a nonprofit right before I graduated uh, with my undergrad. Um, so I have been volunteering and philanthropic since, you know, high school. Um, and that social impact has always been a part of my career and understanding community engagement, social impact, volunteering has always been a part of my understanding and upbringing. What about your, your parents or, you know, any kind of parenting? Was there any, you know, was there any influence from, from them or from? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so a lot of, a lot of my social impact came from my dad. My, my mom, uh, she just kind of worked, uh, but my dad, so he had, uh, he, he had cerebral palsy. Mm. He was born in, uh, 1948 on a U.S. military base with cerebral palsy. And so he always sort of made his way in, in a society that didn't understand him or, you know, like thought he was strange. Uh, and so my dad always worked in situations that advocated for people who didn't have, um, who didn't have a voice. So he, he worked in uh, a school uh, to get your GED. So if you dropped out of high school for whatever reason, uh, he worked at a school to help you get your high school diploma. He worked at um, prisons uh, a lot in his career uh, in the education department. So, you know, they, as the therapy, you know, uh, doing doing something for the prisoners. So he would help them get their GED or teach them simple machines. And so he always he always caught people that fell through the cracks. Uh, and I think it's because of his cerebral palsy, you know, like he kind of fell through the cracks in society. Mm. And, uh, so I was, I was always really inspired by that. I, when I was little, I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be a teacher like my dad. Um, but I, I ended up in a lot of various fields, but, uh, my dad definitely inspired me to do pretty amazing things that society said, that maybe I couldn't do. Hmm. Yeah, there's. Um, I think it's a, an interesting, interesting subject that you know, if you have somebody who is like a, a figure who has, who has kind of lived with the trials and tribulations of, you know, what social impact can bring. Um, and you see it firsthand, that makes you a lot more appreciative of it too. 
and, and also, I I grew up really poor, so um, it was really it's it's quite strange that so my dad was a public school teacher. Uh, my mom worked at the airport for a rental car company. You know, making I don't know whatever, but we were really poor, and like for a public school teacher to be really really poor. So I have that perspective as well of, you know, oh, well, poor people are lazy. I'm like, mm, I don't think that you've met my parents, mm. <laughs> right? Like they, they made sure that I, you know, I got to school and I had the things and we didn't have other things, but I had everything I needed for my education. Uh, so the fact that my dad had cerebral palsy and we grew up really poor. I think it gave me a really interesting perspective on on social impact, on community engagement. That that change can happen collectively. Let me ask you another. What are the biggest examples of social? I can't even talk properly today. What are, <laughs> what are the biggest examples of social change you've experienced? Oh, so I think my generation specifically, um, you know, we, we've had, we've gone through a lot and we're not even, we're not even 40 yet. <laughs> we, we have gone through, um, numerous economic downfalls. You know, we had the 2008 recession. We've gone through numerous, um, devastating environmental uh travesties like hurricane katrina uh devastating fires in the united states uh we are the generation of school shootings it didn't happen in other generations and like we grew up we grew up with like every every week or so there's a school shooting uh starting oh gosh uh <laughs> starting like 1999 1998 when Columbine happened, the first like high school school shooting. Um, you know, we've gone through now two economic recessions. We like we just had a lot of a lot of things happen in our generation. Every generation has a lot, but like we've gone through a lot and we're not even 40 yet. We've gone through wars, we've gone through a lot. Um and so I, I I'm I think the biggest thing that has happened, like the social change is I think that my generation, people born from, you know, 1981 to 2001, um, is a very purpose-driven generation. We are a generation that believes in impact, is pushing social change. And so I think that is a, the biggest, that, um, I mean, obviously that I've lived through is, is this generational push to do better, to treat each other better, to have you know, LGBT rights, to have environmental regulations, to have all of these things, I think that this generation is pushing for that, knowing that we have, you know, people who are younger than us, like Greta Thunberg, and she's speaking at the UN, right? Like, mm. to, to be able to, to forge this sort of path of, of social impact, but on a generational scale. I don't think that we've all woken up yet, but 
1981 to 2001 is a pretty purpose-driven generation. Like, hey, the earth is dying and we're the cause of it. So, like, let's do something about it. Let's protest. Let's have these consumer changes. And I, I think generationally that that is a huge shift in how we think. Um, is it's, it's a huge shift in how we think and it's a huge movement in social change. What are your thoughts on businesses having a corporate social responsibility? Well, this is kind of an unfair question to you because <laughs> what you do is all about social responsibility. So, <laughs> that was a softball question. That yeah, was, yeah. That was that was like that was like a presidential debate <laughs> softball question. Um, I 100% believe that businesses can and should be a force for good. Um, I think that uh, I, I came from the nonprofit field um, where I'm a, I'm a nonprofit fundraiser, volunteer manager, community organizer by trade, and I would raise millions of dollars for an organization. Across the United States, I've raised millions of millions of dollars for, you know, pretty much every kind of nonprofit that you can think of. So, you know, I'd raise a million dollars for homelessness and then I'd walk out on the street and I'm like, why is there still homelessness? Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand. So I think nonprofits are great and there's definitely a purpose for them. But at some point, are they uh, perpetuating the problem that they're trying to solve? And so I was thinking, like, okay, well, why can't people? Why can't people afford their homes? What is going on? That what is going on upstream that people feel like they have to put their children in the river to go downstream? Um, and so I think that businesses can and should be a force for good because my company, Twigs and Co., is modeling that. Um, we track our economic impact in terms of volunteering, pro bono work, uh, getting other people to come and volunteer with us. And in a year and a half of our company operating, we have over $100,000 in economic impact. We have hundreds of people coming to volunteer with us. Um, we've given thousands of volunteer hours. And I think with this purpose-driven generation, we know that we can, we can treat our employees better. Uh, one of the uh, food banks that we volunteer with on a regular basis, their executive director said, uh, uh, made an article and, uh, Metro caring said, yes, uh, two, two businesses. This is what she says to like big corporations. Yes, you can come and volunteer with us. Yes, we will accept your money. Yes, you can give us in-kind things. How much are you paying your lowest paid employee? How much, how much are you paying your janitor? What is the gap between the janitor and the executive director? Because if you don't have that, if you don't know that answer, that's how systemic change happens is that the gap between the, the CEO and the janitor becomes much smaller. And that makes Metro Caring's job easier and easier because their lines are, are shorter. So if, People can't afford to work at your company. They're going to go to a food bank. So maybe it's the company's responsibility mm. to take care of their employees, to pay them a living wage. Denver in Colorado is very expensive 
it, it costs a hundred thousand dollars. You need a salary of a hundred thousand U.S. dollars to live here, and the average Coloradan makes fifty thousand dollars a year. So there's 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 a, a separation in this idea of like, okay, well, I'm working, I'm working full time, but I have to get a second job. I don't have any health insurance. If I lose my job, the crappy health insurance that I do have, it's going to go away because we don't have universal health care. That's put that puts employees and employers in a precarious spot because if you have a healthy, well-educated, uh, engaged, purpose-driven employee base, you're going to make more money. And so it, it actually makes a lot of sense from a single bottom line perspective to take care of your employees so that they take care of you so that you can make more money. Um, and I think that businesses can do that. And so it's not just, yeah, we volunteer once a year. It's like, great, good. Thank you. How are you taking care of your employees? Are you paying them? Well, are you paying them so that they don't need a food bank? So they don't need two or three jobs. No work on that. Take care of your people and take care of the community and take care of the planet. You're going to triple your bottom line. Interesting. Interesting way of looking at it. So what would you say are the successful elements of implementing a social responsibility in business? What would you say was the the key components? I think the leadership has, has to be in on it. Um, it's really hard to have uh, a, a subgroup of people like wanting to do this if if your CEO, if your HR, uh, if if all of your you know C-suite people are not on board with this, is going to be really really hard to impact change. Um, so honestly, I <laughs> the way that uh, Twigs and Co talks to businesses is we talk to them in a trip uh, in a single bottom line. You know, employee uh, employee turnover is very expensive. It costs salary and a half. Every time an employee leaves, it's costing you salary and a half. Like, and that's not institutional knowledge. That's not all of the training that you put in. That's just like the time it takes to recruit and hire someone. That's very expensive. And if you have a 10, 20, 30% turnover weight every, every year, it's very expensive. So like getting the leadership team involved and talking about corporate social responsibility in terms of the numbers. Yeah, it's great that you fed, you know, 100 people this year. But how is that impacting the bottom line? How is that impacting the marketing team? How is that impacting research and development? How is that impacting employee retention and, and engagement? I mean, half, half of millennials, 1981, 2001, we make up 37% of the population. Half of us are actively disengaged at work. That is a lot of people not like not working out of an eight hour work week. People work maybe like three, like are working three to four hours. So the biggest metric, like the biggest success of implementation is getting leadership on board, getting leadership to understand that sustainability is not expensive. It's actually making you money. If you take care of your employees and you take care of your community, you take care of the environment. It's, it's making you more money. And I think when people start talking about sustainability and not just like kind of this tree hugger, ethereal language, like save the whales. And you're like, yeah, that's important. 
but like your your employee engagement is costing you a lot of money. So you can do good and do well at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. And, and I think that's really important to implement corporate social responsibilities, getting the leadership on board and understanding that they can make a lot of money when they have a productive, engaged, happy workforce. And I think leaders are everything. Good leaders are everything. Um, because if you have one, if you're lucky to have a good leader amongst you, it makes all the difference. It really does. It does. And there's, there's a distinct, there's a definite distinction between a leader and a manager, right? Like a manager is just, you know, trying to check the boxes. A leader is, is growing human beings, right? Is engaging them to like help them reach their, their full potential. And when people feel engaged and connected, they're going to go above and beyond. Oh, yeah. You know, like, yeah. you know, and I, I know that I, I talk in very single bottom line approach. Like, I, I really be, like I'm, I'm a nonprofit worker, right? Like, I believe in, in all of these like good human things. But when changing business people's minds, it, it, it makes sense. It makes financial dollars and cents to take care of your people. My, my dad always said, when you cease to serve, you cease. And that includes your employees. If you don't take care of your employees, if you don't serve your employees and lead from behind, you're not going to be sustainable, as in you are not going to be open. Yeah. So when you're making your own social impact, what do you find as being the biggest obstacles that you face? Hmm. Um, I, I think that mentality that sustainability, corporate social responsibility is expensive and there's no return on investment. I think that the, the, uh, one of the biggest obstacles is this, this active, vicious cycle of disengagement that I mentioned before. I don't care about you and you don't care about me and I don't, I don't care. I don't care about the government. The government doesn't care about me. I don't. It's just. It's just this continuing cycle of disengagement. That's a huge obstacle, right? Where like people don't vote. People don't. They don't know their neighbors. They don't. You know. They don't know their their next cubicle over at work. We spend most of our lives at work, forty hours a week, fifty weeks out of the year. Uh, Americans work a lot. We don't take vacations. We work a lot. We spend most of our lives there and we're just disengaged from each other. So I think that we have businesses have a profound opportunity to engage their employees and, and allow employees to be more. Because we spend most of our lives uh, in it, at work. And so we have this opportunity of businesses making a lot of money with uh, engaged, purpose-driven employees. And they can do it through the workforce, knowing that people only work three to four hours, like actually produce labor for three to four hours. The rest is social, right? The social piece is huge. And that kind of, that kind of obstacle of like not knowing each other can be quickly disintegrated by allowing your employees to volunteer because then they know each other. Most of the time at work is social. 
right? Studies show we only work three to four hours a day out of an eight-hour work week. The rest is social or going to the bathroom or whatever. Okay, so capitalize on that. They're, they're producing the same amount. Let them volunteer. Let them engage in an avenue of something that they're really passionate about. The company, it makes sense strategically for them uh, to volunteer and support. And incorporate that very social piece of going to work into work. Creating an engaged, civically-minded workforce. Because most of what we do is social at work. And so just facilitate that a little bit more. Uh, disengagement is a huge obstacle and, and the disbelief of that this is an effective model. Uh, the, the cognitive distance of, yeah, this is too expensive and I'm not going to get any ROI from it. I think those are two huge barriers. And all of that, I, th- I believe that the path from a uh, vicious cycle of disengagement to a virtuous cycle of engaged, purpose-driven citizens is through volunteerism. However that looks, I think like we just need to be more connected with each other. So we've spoken about the biggest obstacles that you faced when making your own social impact. Is there any ob- obstacle that you actually sp- experienced and overcome? Hmm. So volunteerism is not the United States is a very philanthropic country. Uh, a good portion of our GDP comes from philanthropy, which I think is um, a pretty unique model. Like we have a, a trillions of dollars in, in GDP comes from donations and philanthropy. Um, so we, we have this sort of culture of giving, but just from a distance. Just like, hey, I'll, I'll shoot some money over. Um, we do volunteer a lot, um, probably in, in uh, ranked with other countries. We, we do volunteer a lot. Um, but that, that obstacle that is, is still there, right? Like the obstacle of volunteering and like I'm, I'm watching six hours of Netflix or I'm playing video games or I'm working and I'm tired and I don't have time to do it because I'm working three jobs that's that's a that's a real obstacle and um i'm really passionate about volunteering i'm really really passionate about connecting people and when when covid first hit here in the states specifically colorado because that's my own personal experience um we didn't we didn't quite know and you know, Anna and I at Twigs and Co. We, we didn't quite know what to do. All of us didn't know what to do. Um, uh, nonprofits, food banks had a five to eight hundred percent increase in need um, in terms of like people need food, uh, and their entire volunteer base. Most volunteers in the United States are retired because they don't they have the time to do it because businesses don't allow people to volunteer while they're working. So people retire, they have nothing else to do. So they retire. So we had a 600 to 800% need in food. 
And because of COVID, because of the most vulnerable populations were 65 and older, our retired population. So nonprofits said, oh my God, we don't have any volunteers. And so Anna and I said, well, we're young. We have hands. We have an entire network of entrepreneurs who are, you know, doing the, uh, the second job. We're, we're Uber drivers. We're bartenders. We're servers. And now we don't have a job. So we said, hey, we, we're young. We have a network. Have hands. We'll show up. What do you, excuse me, what do you need? And it, that really caught on. And then, and then we were like, hey, do you think that we could grab a food box? Because we're not making any money and, like, we don't have any way of buying food. Do you think we could grab a food box too? And the nonprofits that said yes, please show up. Please bring your coalition of 30 to 40 volunteers every week and we'll give you food. Like that was an enormous problem that we were able to to overcome. Uh, and, and we are seeing this right now. We are building this amazing coalition. People want to volunteer with us. They want to they want to utilize it as networking. They want to show up as servant leaders. They want to get a free food box. They want to get like their gym workout in. And most of our volunteer events fill up within a couple of days and there's always a wait list. That's amazing. It's it's amazing. It's it's absolutely incredible that like we are building this coalition actively from a, a from a disengaged vicious cycle to a virtuous cycle of engaged purpose driven, you know, professionals. And and now we're convincing now we're out there in the business world like hey, we can we can engage your employees in a profoundly different way. Um, you know, let us let us manage these events. Let us figure out your corporate social responsibility strategies for you. And it's it's humbling. It is humbling that you know 10, 15 slots every, uh, every week or so we volunteer about three times a week, just as, as a company, they fill up and wait lists happen. Like people are like, let me know if there's a slot open, <laughs> right? People are becoming more engaged. And, and, and we had one of the best compliments we've ever had. At, at, actually, you were there, Chris. Uh, our next steps to sustainability. What is radical collaboration? Hmm. Someone said, that we create an environment, any environment, whether it's volunteering or sustainability education, we create an environment that is uh, where their ideas feel welcomed and honored. That's an amazing, that's an amazing compliment. Yeah. To, to have this like scarcity, fear-based mentality of like, I don't care about you. I don't care. I don't care what happens to like, I love you guys, right? Like, yeah. how do we show up and serve the community? That's an amazing obstacle of, 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 of actively, like, we are building this bridge from disengagement to engagement through volunteerism. Nice. I like it. So who's, if anyone, has influenced or inspired you on your, so, on your social in, impact journey? And if so, who? Well, you mentioned your dad at the start of. Um, but is there anyone else who's been um, 
who's been an inspiration? Yeah. Um, I, I would I would certainly say my business partner Anna Burrell. I I um I, I've had these ideas of being socially impactful, but she's she's kind of like my Morpheus from the from the Matrix. You know, she's like red or blue pill, and I'm like I don't know. Let's just go. And I have shifted a lot in my in my idea that business can be a force for good. I was like, no, it's nonprofits, right? Like that's where that's where it sits. And uh, really, through through her leadership and, and and vision of the future, vision of collaboration, vision of radical collaboration, I feel like I've shifted a lot um, in in my ideas about. Uh, conscious capitalism about uh, business being a force for good. Like business is not all bad, um, especially when you have a lot of impact-focused people coming together and building those coalitions. Um, so she's been a huge inspiration, um, and and the people doing the work, right? Like the it's very humbling. It's very humbling to for me to have this conversation with you, right? Like we live across an ocean from each other and for you to be inspired by what we're doing and and you 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 know we found each other via LinkedIn and for you to be inspired by what we're doing and for other people to be like yeah let me jump on board I mean that's it's people doing the work every single day right it's 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 individuals like, hey, I, I want to change the world too, and this is what I'm doing. And like, come on, let's jump on in. And like, the fact that other people see what we're doing and 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 want to jump in that that's humbling and inspiring. So like, everyone in our radical collaboration coalition is, I'm I'm humbled and inspired by them, by their belief, by their support. Um, and I don't, I don't think I would be able to do that to do this without everyone, right? Like it's 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 this collective effort. You know, certainly my dad inspired me, and you know, Anna was like, "Yeah, let's start a business together." And I'm like, cautious rat folk, like, what? No stable income? I don't think I can do that. And she's like, "Yeah, we can. We can change the world." Um, but like. I'm inspired by coalitions of people. I'm inspired by like people being inspired by us. Like it's, 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 it's like a virtuous cycle, right? Like, Oh, Oh, there it is. Everyone's inspired by each other to do good. And it's like this, this, uh, virtuous, like capitalist, like, Oh, you're doing good. Okay. Well, let me do good and like innovate on top of that good. And then like, here's my do good. And then you take it and then add some flavor. And then like, we'll just go back and forth and we just keep adding like the do-good, adding to the do-good plan. Funny enough, when I had a chat with Anna about this and I asked her the very same question and I said to her, you know, who has influenced or, or inspired you in your social impact journey? Guess who she said? Uh, uh, <laughs> I have a feeling that... <laughs> I have a feeling the conversation is leading to me and I'm going to cry ugly, humble cro- tears into my coffee. <laughs> it was you, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
Um, that's not to put you on the spot or anything, but when I when I said that to her, you know, when I said who inspires you, and then she mentioned it, and then she said to me afterwards, "It's going to be interesting to hear what Vicky says." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is this is how business should operate, right? Like yeah. you should absolutely love who you work with. You should be inspired by them. Um, you should be inspired by their drive and dedication and purpose and impact and enthusiasm and all of the things, right? Like to be inspired by and love that, like truly love the people that you work with is just, this is how business should operate, right? Like, can you yeah. imagine everyone operating where they're like, you know what got me through the pandemic? The work that we're doing at Twigs and Co. That's what like most people probably could not have said, like this got me through like volunteering and inspiring people. I was, yeah, that got me through the pandemic. It was a very lonely place. And like knowing that I could volunteer with people and, and volunteer with impact businesses, it got me through. And like this, can you imagine a world where everyone felt this way? It would be incredible. It'd be yeah. an incredible world to live in. Because I'm, I'm the same. If I didn't have, if I hadn't have had the, the dragons, you know, through, through all of this, pandemic I don't, I don't know how I would have coped to be honest I needed I feel something that. yeah so what would you say is the biggest achievement in social impact that you've made you've obviously said about the down down the years that you know you've you've obviously had these figures who you've you know, these human figures that you've learned from. You've obviously talked about big figures that you've made for charities. Um, but is there any of them that you would say, or is there something in particular that you would say is the biggest achievement that you've made in social impact so far? Uh I, I would say starting uh, the biggest achievement is uh, is is starting Twigs and Co. Mm -hmm. uh, because even though I raised millions of dollars for nonprofits, and I'm really proud of that, but I feel like we are changing the system through this company. I feel like we are creating a we are building community wealth. We are shifting the economies. Uh, to create an economy that works for everyone and not just the few. Um, and, and we are building a bridge of active engagement and, and purpose-driven people, right? Like we are, we are creating that and we are, we are getting, we, what we are doing is inspiring and motivating people more than sitting on their couch and watching Netflix, that's a really hard task because at the end of the day, are you more exciting than your, than, than your phone? Are we more exciting than someone's phone? And I, I think we're building that, right? People make a choice to come and volunteer with us. People make a choice to be radically collaborative with us, to shift their mindset. They're making a choice to do that and to engage and to be our champions instead of looking at their phone. And all of the social media companies have spent 
billions, billions and billions and billions of dollars so that you don't leave this. You get a ding, you get a notification, someone likes it, you feel engaged, you feel happy. And at the core of humanity, we just want to belong. We want to belong to each other, right? We want to connect and relate to each other. And for us to like beat out Facebook, right? For us to beat out social media and, and like we're not giving them a ding. Well, we do. We, we post things on social media, so we give each other dings. But like that sort of endorphin rush that people get from volunteering with us, they're no longer looking at their phone, right? They, mm. they could choose to sit on the couch and look at their phone and get that endorphin rush from the billions of dollars in technology that like that was what it's designed for you to do to sit there and look at the phone for hours and people are getting the endorphins rush from us yeah that's that's huge right so yeah. like raising money for nonprofits is great but like changing how people think through activism through change through action like that's that's humbling that that is absolutely humbling. Very true. So we are on to the last question. We've seen rattled through those first nine. So we've got one <laughs> more question left. Do you have any advice for anyone who is looking to make their own social impact in the world? Yeah. Uh just just keep doing it. Don't don't give up. There are so many people who believe exactly the same thing as you, that you can be a force for good. Um, you know, reach out, reach out to me via LinkedIn. I, I love connecting people. It is one of my absolute joys to connect other people, ideas, groups, uh, organizations together. Um, just, just know that, you know, there are people who want to change the world and, and we're doing the things and you don't, you don't have to be a CEO. You don't have to make millions of dollars to impact change. Just go and volunteer. Right. And if you're a little nervous about doing it, reach out to a friend and ask them to go volunteer with you. Uh, find something that you're passionate about. It, anything, environment, school, education, women's rights, it, whatever it is, reading to kids, you know, grooming cats and dogs, it doesn't matter. Just find something that you're passionate about and, and, and an entire world of people and passions and enthusiasm will open up to you. Thank you. That's awesome. And do you know what? I've loved the chat this afternoon. Um, I really have because it's always nice to hear what other people say about social impact. And whilst we're all different, we've all got a similar theme. You know, we've all we've all got this similar thing that motivates us. So, yeah, from my side of the world to yours, I really, <laughs> really appreciate you coming along and spending some time with me and chatting about social impact on uh, on your side of the water. Oh my gosh, this is this is amazing. Thank you, thank you so much for for your leadership, um, for your enthusiasm and dedication to changing the world. You know, and and it, it's truly inspiring. Like you are changing the world through your passions of of football, 
right? And 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 other people's passions of football and connecting those passions to their favorite nonprofits and international nonprofits. And I think that is that is how we change the world, right? Well, how do I change the world? I'm 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 just a football player. I just watch football. Yeah, yeah, you can. Follow Chris's model. He did it. You're changing the world. So thank you. Thank you for changing the world. Thank you. That's that's nice. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, thank you. Thank you again. And uh, oh, uh, can I can I give a, a quick shout out plug for uh, one of our upcoming events? Of course. So uh, every month on the 17th, we hope host a next steps to sustainability where we talk about how, how to have a sustainable business. And so this month we're talking about organizational sustainability in terms of uh, getting your executive team on board, uh, the public's perspectives, and how to create a uh, the policies and procedures that make you more sustainable internally. Uh, you can follow me on uh, LinkedIn, and I'll get you all that information. May the 17th, Next Steps to Sustainability. Thank you again for everything. It's been great to chat to you. Thank you. All right.